from John 12, 12 down to the end of the chapter, down to verse 50. It's on page uh, 801 in your pew Bible. And, uh, and if you're able, would you please stand out of reverence for the word of our Lord? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If one serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. Walk while you have the light. Believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah must be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities 
believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words as a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that shows us that that even in the midst of seeming tragedy, there is triumph. Even in the midst of death and through death comes life. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your grace and for your glory to leave the things of the world and to cleave to you. Lord, to let go of our focus on the world and fix our eyes on you. Lord, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to to see the, the truths from this passage of scripture and change our hearts by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we might reflect Christ as we have been predestined to do. And we who are yours in Christ ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a a popular children's song that repeats he's got the whole world in his hands. And I'm sure just about everybody here is is quite familiar with that song, but maybe not so familiar with the truths that this song is proclaiming. And I think as as we look through John chapter 12, that it's it's easy to, to draw the incorrect conclusion that maybe Jesus doesn't really have the whole world in his hands in every way that this really means. And John 12 reads like a roller coaster rides. It begins with the humble devotion of Mary as she bends down at the feet of Jesus, anointing them with expensive ointment and wiping them with her hair. Then in the midst of this beautiful picture, we get a glimpse of the black heart of, of Judas as he rebukes Mary in his greed, disappointed that he's unable to sell the ointment and scoop the prophets. Matthew tells us this is after this, that is after this event that Judas went to the Sanhedrin, scheming for an opportunity to betray Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. And we also see the black hearts of the Sanhedrin themselves as they plot the murder 
of Lazarus because so many people were leaving them and believing in Jesus. And by killing Lazarus, they wanted to destroy the evidence. We focused on on those events last week. In addition to the the miracle of raising Lazarus, of Jesus raising, raising Lazarus from the dead. And there's a parallel there, because even as, as there was a, a seeming tragedy of the death of Lazarus and of Jesus holding back and, and not going to him when he could have spared him from death, because he had something immeasurably greater that he wanted to do and something immeasurably greater that he wanted to point to in his own death and resurrection. That even in the midst of that seeming tragedy, there was triumph. And here this morning, we're going to see how the, the events of the remainder of Mark 12 show that, that even as we start with, with triumph and then quickly descend into seeming tragedy and then back to triumph, and then we'll look at this again next week, back to, to seeming tragedy we'll see that that Jesus really is the sovereign of the universe, that he really does have the whole world in his hands. And this passage here in in John 12 really marks the end of Jesus' public ministry and then leads into the events directly preceding the cross. And this marks the the beginning of the, the transition from his from his, his ministry on earth and his heavenly glory. And so this morning we're going to see how the culmination of his, early, of his earthly ministry demonstrates his glory as first we see that the whole world has followed after Jesus and all that that means. And then we'll see how Jesus must be lifted up from the world. And then next week, we'll see what it means that Jesus came to save the world. So first of all, here in verses 12 to 22, we want to see how the whole world has followed after Jesus. So verse 12, where we pick up this morning, brings us back to a high note. This is the triumphal entry. And John doesn't give us as much detail as we find in the, in the, in the synoptic gospels, he's presenting really the, the bare facts of an event that, that would have been common knowledge for his readers. And when I, I, when I considered how I was going to divide this text and how I was going to preach it, I thought about just, just preaching this one section on the triumphal entry, but, but we only just looked at this a few months ago. And so I trust that, the, that those events are familiar in your mind, so I'm just going to kind of do what John does and just give you a, a, a brief um, overview of the triumphal entry and, and what that means. But it's after this event that, that Jesus will draw his public ministry to a, to a close and the remainder of his gospel account, in fact, the entire second half of John's gospel account is focused on the ministry of Jesus to his disciples and to the events directly before the crucifixion, the end of his time on earth, and the time for him to return to his heavenly Father is at hand. And the event that's, that's, 
that we're looking at this morning serves on one level as as the climax of Jesus's earthly ministry. At no point in his incarnation has his popularity been greater. This event far supersedes even of him feeding the the the, the five thousand and the four thousand. It's the day after Mary, the sister of Lazarus, has anointed his feet in Bethany. It's immediately prior to the Passover, and a vast number of pilgrims, probably more than two million people, have gathered in Jerusalem. Many of them were, were, were from the Galilean countryside, the region in which Jesus had performed much of his ministry. And many more had heard about Lazarus and wanted to see Jesus for themselves. They had heard about the miracle earlier and had speculated as to whether Jesus was going to show up at the feast. But then somehow, word gets out that Jesus is on his way, and a large crowd gathers, waving palm branches in the air. And only John tells us that it's palm branches, but this is not an insignificant detail. In Leviticus 23.40, palm branches were part of the required worship during the Feast of Tabernacles that we looked at several weeks ago. But palm branches were likely linked to, with an event even closer to the hearts and minds of many of the Jews that were gathered here. Many of these Jews who were being oppressed by the Roman occupation. We'd spoken previously about Judas Maccabeus and his leadership in the guerrilla war against the Seleucid Empire in the 2nd century BC that enabled the temple to be freed so that the Jews could worship. And that resulted in the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah. And his triumph was celebrated with music and the waving of palm branches. And similarly, after his brother Simon Maccabeus gained final victory over the Seleucids and drove them completely out of Jerusalem, he entered the city greeted by, guess what? The waving of palm branches. And so the palm branch became a symbol of of military victory, of Jewish nationalism. And so here with, with these with these crowds waving palm branches, it's as though they were flying the national flag in the faces of their Roman occupiers. But this crowd waving palm branches also points forwards, though not in a way that the people had fathomed. It points forward to something immeasurably greater when the elect of every nation are worshiping at the throne of God. Please turn to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So these people are in in the future. This is this is pointing to the last day when all of, of the children of God are gathered together worshiping him. 
We'll see the beginning of the fulfillment of this in verses 20 and 21 as some Greeks seek Jesus. He's got the whole world in his hands. At the triumphal entry, the cry on the people's lips was, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. This is a quote from Psalms 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna is the Greek transliteration for the the Hebrew word meaning save now. And Psalm 118 is the only place that, that this word is used. It was originally a cry for help, but in, in focusing on verse 26, it gradually came to mean that salvation has come. So when these crowds saw Jesus riding into the city, they concluded that salvation had come. And they rightly saw Jesus as a savior, but they saw him as a military savior, not as their spiritual savior. This will become evident when, when, they're before, when the people are before Pontius Pilate. And the, these shouts of, of Hosanna are, are transformed into shouts of crucify him. These people were not thinking spiritually. They, they thought Jesus was coming to drive the Romans out of Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't fulfill their expectations. He didn't enter the city riding a war horse. That's probably what what we would have expected. But D.A. Carson explains that this would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into insurrectionist frenzy. But he chooses to present himself as the king who comes in peace. So as Jesus rode into the city on a borrowed donkey colt, his humility and his actual mission should have been evident. And John cites Zechariah 9.9. The entire verse reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. There is a time that Jesus is going to come back. And, and scripture pictures him riding on, on, a, on a war horse then. As he comes bringing justice, perfect wrath on his enemies. But that time was not yet. Jesus had another mission. And the symbolism was intentional. The donkey represented humility and peace. In Zechariah 9.10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. These events began at, during the incarnation and here at the, the, the triumphal entry of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, but it will be fully and finally fulfilled when he returns on the last day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Jesus came then not to defeat the Romans, but to defeat an enemy immeasurably more powerful than any worldly army. But the crowds didn't get it. They didn't get it. 
And not even his disciples understood what was going on. Even as Jesus taught them, their ignorance would be more and more acute during the coming week. They too expected that Jesus would come as a conquering king. They didn't expect to allow himself to be conquered. And it wasn't until Jesus was glorified that they understood. Then in verses 17 to 20, in the next four verses, we have four different groups of people in view. First, we have the crowd that witnessed the raising of of Lazarus in verse 17, and then a second crowd who heard about it in verse 18. The ones that had seen what Jesus had done bore witness. They spread the word. So by the time Jesus approached the city, a vast number of people were, were coming out to meet him. And who knows, but maybe the Lord will use our own gospel proclamation to add others to the number of people who will be eager to meet Jesus when he returns. And not with the fickle eagerness of this crowd, but with a people who will worship him eternally. In verse 19, we have another group. This group stands excuse me, in stark contrast to those who are eager to meet Jesus. In in contrast to the the jubilation of the crowds, we have the jealousy of the Pharisees. At the end of chapter 11, the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should report it so that they could arrest him. Well, there was no secret as to his whereabouts now. They would have loved to arrest him immediately, but they were afraid of the crowds. Imagine the, the uproar if they had sent the temple guard to arrest Jesus in the midst of the rejoicing of the crowds and any shred of of popularity that the Pharisees had would have been gone in an instant. They were more wily than that. And they knew that their schemes were futile, so they lamented, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And we talked about this on Wednesday night. But of course, they didn't mean that every single man and woman and child in the world was following Jesus. Jesus does have the whole world in his hands, but not in that sense. We take the Bible literally, but we mustn't constrain the words of the Bible with, with a wooden literalism. We, we should, as David Volk says, let the words breathe. We shouldn't apply a, 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 a rigid interpretation of the words that we don't use in our own speech. We need to let the context help us to understand what the words really mean. Now, repeatedly in John's Gospel, the word cosmos, which we translate world, refers to people without racial distinction. We've had hints of this already as Jesus had reached out to the Samaritan woman. And as Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied that it was better for one man to die for the people, and then we understand from John's editorial comment in verses 51 and 52 that, that Christ's death was not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the people of God who are scattered abroad. And then in verse 20 we meet some of these people. And again, most of your Bibles probably have a a division 
between verses 19 and 20, but, but, but it shouldn't naturally be there. Well, and if it's there, you need to, to realize that, that these things were put in afterwards, long afterwards by men. These were not part of the original text. We see that some Greeks went up to worship at the feast. And they went to Philip and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip and Andrew went to speak to Jesus. Now, to our ears, this might not sound like a big deal. To, to our, our ears, we don't, we don't understand the context of the division that was seen between Jew and Gentile at this time. The Jews saw the Gentiles as separated from God, and it is indeed through Israel. They were the, the elect, the chosen people of God, and, and the, the Gentiles were separated. They were divided from entering the inner courts of the temple by a dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2.14. But here we have Jews, so we have Greeks seeking Jesus. Now, we don't know exactly why they sought Jesus, but the irony is powerful. Contrasted with the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish Pharisees, we now have Gentiles wanting to draw near to him. These Greeks were representative of the whole world that had gone after Jesus. He really does have the whole world in his hands. But it might seem strange to consider that when we look at verses 23 to 36. That Jesus must be lifted up from the world. Verse 23, Jesus responds, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we saw in 730 that these authorities had, that the authorities had sought to arrest Jesus, but his hour had not yet come. But the hour was now at hand. And to the ears of the disciples, this would have been a glorious proclamation. It was the moment that they had been waiting for. Now everybody would find out who Jesus was. But the reality was that they, at this point, didn't yet know who Jesus really was. They weren't prepared for the comment that would come next in verse 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. A kernel of wheat or any seed must be buried in the ground in order to produce fruit. The Apostle Paul uses the same illustration in 1 Corinthians 15, 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Now, many of you put seeds in the ground a few months ago and are now beginning to reap the harvest. We enjoyed some of Karen's tomatoes this past week. But if you didn't think about the harvest that was yet to come, to put your seeds in the ground would, would seem like foolishness. If you put your, your seed on a, on a pillow, on a pedestal in a prominent place of your living room and polish it and dust it and, and look at it and say, wow, what a beautiful seed. It's not going to do anything. In order to bear fruit, it must die. It has to 
die. And the glory that Jesus had in mind required his death. It required his death. And for us to receive glory from Jesus, we also must die. But in a different way. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So often, like people did in, in the situation with Lazarus, we, we, we judge the story from the middle of the story. We need to remember how the story turns out. Even as Jesus Christ receives the, 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 the most dishonorable death that sinful human minds could consider. If you were to judge that story from the middle, it would be the, the worst of all tragedies. But you need to remember how the story ends. Some of us here are in the midst of, of trials, of significant trials. We, we tend to believe that, that everything in this world is, is going to be easy and going to be fun. But that's not how the scriptures present it. Again and again and again in scripture, we are, we are told that suffering is necessary. It is only those who suffer with Jesus who will be raised with Jesus. Jesus says if you are, if you are living for this life, if, you're, if you love this life, you will die. But by comparison, Jesus says that it is those who hate their earthly life that we find eternal life. So what do you love? What do you live for? What are you serving? What do you follow? We all love something. We all live for something. We all serve something. We all follow something. Is it Jesus? If it's not, then what is it? Pleasure, wealth, family, entertainment, career. You'll find the answer to that question by asking what you spend most of your time focused on. By answering the question, what rocks you? What sorts of things are, happen in your life that feel like, like you can't cope? then those are the things that you are living for. And I've been reminded, I'm reminded of that even at this very moment. These are all questions that I have to ask myself too. What am I living for? What do I love? If, if we're loving the, the things of this life, living for them, we will die. 
But if by God's grace we see this life as an opportunity to live for God, we will find eternal life. Any idol that usurps God's rightful place on the throne of our hearts must be cast down. It must be destroyed. Now, the, the, the Lord wouldn't have us live like a monk alone in a cave in the wilderness. That's not what God is calling us to. There was monks in the Middle Ages that tried that. But guess what happened? They discovered that, the, that when they went to those caves, they found that they had taken their idols with them, hidden in their hearts. Beloved, we are called to live our lives in service of God. As is the case for Jesus, our time, our mental and physical energy, and our affections are to be used for the glory of God. And Jesus knew what was coming, so he was troubled. He said, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He knew that there was no other way. He said, but for this purpose I came to this hour. This was his mission. This was the reason why he came. He lived to die. And he was going to die a hideous death. But that wasn't his chief concern. As painful as the cross would be, that wasn't his biggest concern. He was more concerned by the fact that as a perfect, spotless, sinless, holy God, that for the first time he would know, he would know what it means to carry sin as he bore our sins in his body on the tree. He was also more concerned that his father's holy wrath was going to be poured out on him as he bore the punishment that we deserved. And he was even more concerned that for the first time in all of eternity, he would be separated from his Father in heaven. That that close, intimate fellowship of love would be absent. And it was all for the glory of God. That's why he did it, and that's how he could do it. Because he wasn't concerned with the immediate circumstances. Yes, he knew it was going to be difficult, but he was driven by something immeasurably greater. He was driven by the glory of God. Are you driven by the glory of God in the trial that you are facing at this very moment? I'm ashamed to say that, that too often I'm not. That I forget. You've heard me proclaim God's love and wisdom and sovereignty countless times. But I forget too. We all forget. We take our eyes off God and we focus on our circumstances. But Jesus didn't. So he prayed, Father, glorify your name. 
Father, glorify your name. This foreshadows his high priestly prayer from John chapter 17. Please turn with me there. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane as, as he's facing the agony to the point where he sweats drops of blood. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. In the agony of Gethsemane, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed. As he seeks to the strength from the Father to be able to accomplish, to be able to finish his task. And even has, brothers and sisters, he intercedes for us, even in the midst of his agony. And this is why he did it, because he was chiefly concerned with the glory of God. But here in John 12, the Father answers with an audible voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is only one of three times in the Gospels when this happens, the others being at the baptism of Jesus and his, at his transfiguration. But this is the only time that this is recorded in John. And the people around heard it, and they tried to understand where it came from. But Jesus says that, that it wasn't for his sake, but for theirs. He didn't need the encouragement. The Father spoke to bear testimony to point the people to who the Son really is. But there, even in the midst of being troubled, Jesus is triumphant. He's triumphant because of what I said. He's triumphant because he knows that God will be glorified. He knows that the victory is assured. So he declares in verses 31 and 32, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. John tells us that Jesus said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus was going to be lifted up from the world, or more literally, from the earth. As he, as he was literally hanging above the world, nailed to a Roman cross. And it would seem in that moment that the world won. It would seem that Jesus is the one who was defeated, but it is the means, but the means of his apparent defeat is the very means by which he gains the victory. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus was cursed on the cross, but beloved, he was cursed for us. Through the cross, he would draw all people to himself. 
And again, we have to be careful here not to apply a wooden literalism. Jesus doesn't literally mean that he will draw every man, woman, and child to himself. That would be universalism, that everybody gets saved. And we know from right here in this passage that this is not the case. Through the cross, Jesus would provide salvation for all of his people. He's got the whole world in his hands. Here, here Satan is defeated. Now, he will not ultimately be defeated until he is cast into the lake of fire. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the repeated warnings in Scripture to, to watch out for the devil who goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. But Satan was defeated at the cross. Judgment began at the cross, and we'll see next week what that entails. But the crowd answered, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They understood, they got it, that Jesus was talking about his death, but they considered passages like Psalms 89.3 that says, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And they rightly concluded that Christ would remain forever. They didn't understand how he could be killed. They understood that he would be victorious, but they didn't understand how or why. Jesus doesn't answer them. He simply points them to the light. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus is the light of the world. But he's saying that he wouldn't be with them much longer. He's saying, let my light shine on you. Believe in me that you might become my children. And after this, he departed and hid himself from them. But we can see immediately from the following verses, the rejection. We'll see that, that, that Pete, you can see that, that the people turned away from Jesus right after he had said these things. Look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And we see the specific example of the Pharisees who on one level confessed Jesus but had more fear of man than they did of God, so they also rejected Jesus. But here in the midst of, of this rejection of Jesus, and we'll see this next week, Jesus says that, that I have come to save the world. I have come to save the world. And, and we'll, we'll spend our whole time next time looking at, at what exactly that means, what that entails. But I want to ask again, like the situation with Lazarus. Are you looking more at your present circumstances or are you looking at the triumph of Christ over your gravest of circumstances, fellow Christian? Are you looking at the triumph of Christ over your sin? 
Are you judging the story before the ending? Are you seeking the glory of God in the midst of your circumstances? Are you living your life in the light of Christ, shaping yourself and being shaped by God into his image? Are you one of his disciples? Does your life reflect the light of Christ or the darkness of the world? Now, when we look at a passage like this and talk about some of the subject matter that, that, that we, we've examined, I, I hope that each one of us has faced some conviction. And there's different ways that you can go with this. But there's only one right way. Some of us are prone to, to feeling a, a conviction that 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 we, we allow the, the flesh and the devil to, to twist into, into feelings of condemnation. Or some of us are, are tempted just to, to, to forget about it and just to, to feel it in the moment and then walk away as though we've never heard any of this, as, we've never, as if we've never been challenged by any of this. But the only right way to go is to go to Jesus. Whether you are a Christian who is struggling with sin or whether you are an unbeliever who has lived your life in rebellion of Jesus, the answer is the same. Go to Jesus. Look at what Christ did on the cross. Turn away from your sin and turn to him in repentance and faith. That's the only way. That's the only answer. We're all faced with that choice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, 